0: So we're talking about malaria today um, and fever in the returning traveler, okay? Um, And um, this is highly relevant, as probably all of you know, because we've actually had a few cases of malaria in our um, system. Um, um, One just, what, when did we have a case in the soldier? Two months ago, a month (laughs) and a half ago? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then we had another one that died, died, right? That one that died. And um, so we see this. Um, And um, so. All right. So fever in the traveler has to be be, um, um, evaluated immediately because sometimes people can die depending on what they have. So it needs a heads up clinician to sort of connect all the dots to make sure terrible things don't happen. And the most common terrible thing, not that it's extremely common, is cerebral malaria or occasionally you have spread of a very scary contagious disease like mirrors or something like that. So um and obviously after the last 3 years of covid we actually know what to do with something like mirrors, but about 5 years ago I was on the consult service with one of our fellows and we had a a rule out mirrors and everyone collectively had a nervous breakdown and literally no one wanted to go into the room so it was me and um Mindy Sampson who is a fantastic fellow who had to literally do you know group therapy on everybody who refused to go into the room to figure out how to get this person evaluated. And of course, he didn't have mirrors, but still, um, this is where we need to be prepared, figure out what we're doing and understand what's going on. Key question, obviously, you know, um, the point of the talk is where have you been and what did you do during travel, okay? And the other thing is just because someone comes back with a fever after traveling doesn't mean they have something weird and esoteric you have to go through the long differential diagnosis of what what they have what they might have okay all right a very useful website is geosentinel it's a society that was um, established in 1995 by the international society of tribal medicine and the cdc and it's sort of a network of 63 travel clinics on six continents and they Keep track of all the ongoing trends about what's traveling and what's going on. And obviously, these days, everything in the world is interconnected. So, they're a very useful resource as to what's going on, um, what people are seeing, and things like that. They periodically publish case reports, um, reviews, and things like that about what are the recommendations for travel. And, you know, as if the diagnosis and stuff like that was. Um, wasn't difficult enough what you will find is for some of these infections is what is available for treatment and prophylaxis or conventional practice or even resistance patterns is completely different depending on where you are so you know what for example what you we can get for treatment of malaria here in the US is actually pretty different from what you can get in Europe or Africa or India and frequently in um, Africa, and lots of Southeast Asia, you can sort of say, I have malaria, give me something and they will give you something. Um, some of which actually efficacious agents, some of which is counterfeit stuff, some of which is partially effective. And so it can create some real problems. Alright. Alright, here. All right. All right. All right. So this is actually a review that was in the New England Journal um, by Guy Whites, who is um, based, I think, in Southeast Asia. It's a really busy diagram, okay? And the main point of this is there's a lot of things that it could be, and you really need to be thorough and OCD about going through the decision tree about all the things that it could be, otherwise you are missed up. Right. So this is all the, you know, ID people are known for being thorough in OCD. So this is where you really got to do it um, because the list of things that something could be is pretty long. And there's lots of weird, obscure things on the list. All right. So this is a completely incomplete list of life threatening tropical infections characterized by fever. So viral. It's like a bajillion things. Right influenza, MERS, Ebola, Marburg, uh, all these other hemorrhagic fevers, dengue, hanta, yellow fever, Japanese encephalitis, Rift Valley fever, rabies, okay? Uh, Dengue is actually the one particularly here in Florida that we see pretty regularly, and also is the one that we need to be worried about because that's also one, like the other one in red um, on the list, um, plasmodium, that in theory could also be transmitted locally, right? So not only do you need to worry about the travelers coming from places, but you also at times need to be heads up and think about it uh, if someone presents in a weird way and think of, well, did some mosquitoes mix with some of the wrong people and, and start a little, little local outbreak of something, all right? Bacteria, anthrax. So the red things, dengue, enteric fever, plasma, falciparum, malaria are the ones that are pretty serious that actually you may see here, okay? All the other ones are things that we always talk about, um, but probably you won't see. But, you know, obviously this is Tampa General Hospital. You know, we have one of the best in the country. We have a big cancer referral center. And so we see all sorts of strange stuff that other health systems wouldn't see. So if anyone's gonna see it in the US, we'll see it. So you gotta be heads up. All right, so um, so bacteria, you know, anthrax, enteric fever, typhus, leptospirosis, smilidosis, meningococcal infections, aurora fever, plague, okay? And then among protozoa, malaria, fasted malaria, dole's eye malaria, and actually VIVAX malaria, you know, is something that you can see, though it's usually not life threatening, that's why it's not on this, and trypanosomiasis. And the other thing about this list is this is the list of things that will be on the boards. They'll give you some weird epidemiologic clue, some strange clinical symptom, and it will be one of these things on this list, okay? So... You know, I can guarantee um, that for board studying, some of this will be on the list. Okay. All right. So since the differential diagnosis seems to be almost infinitely long, and you have to really evaluate the patient really, really thoroughly, the things that you need to think about when you're um, thinking about a returning traveler with fever. So the itinerary, including layovers, there have been cases of someone who laid over in the um, Nairobi airport and got malaria. Right. And so so like detailed, you know, detailed history, because, you know, those mosquitoes flying around in the airport, uh, you know, uh, can also do stuff that you know can happen in the bush. Um, vaccinations and prophylaxis, right? So not everyone goes to a travel doctor and gets all the vaccinations and people get prescribed prophylaxis, but they don't always take it. And even if they take it, they don't always take it like they're supposed to, right? So it's good if they take it, but don't assume anything if they, even if they say they took it. And then, as I said, depending on where you go, you could get all sorts of stuff over the counter or on the street, so that can mask symptoms, delay presentations, all sorts of things. So you need to take a pretty careful history about what someone really took or what they thought they were taking. Other medical pro- problems are also going to make you know people um, you know um, predisposed to certain kinds of things, right? Um, so if someone is immunologically vulnerable, they're more likely to come up with symptomatic disease in a lot of cases. Obviously, exposure. So, unfiltered water, unpasteurized milk, raw food, unwashed produce. You know, whether they drink fresh water, bottled water, um, walking in soil, or barefoot on the beach. Sexual contacts. Um, people don't want to talk about that, but sometimes they go to places explicitly for sexual tourism, right? Um, so people will come back with HIV as a souvenir of their travel. Seriously. Seriously, so you got to ask, right? You don't know, right? Uh, exposures to ill fit friends or family, insect bites, right? Animal bites, animal contacts, bird contacts. So it's a pretty extensive and thorough list because the differential diagnosis is pretty long. All right. So, and then you also need to look at the timing of the fever relative to the travel. All right. So most of these things have general incubation, you know, periods. So that it's, you know, most of these things will happen within a couple of weeks of landing, but you need to find out like how long they were, wherever they were, whether the Simpsons began where they were, or whether they began here. A lot of times after people have been traveling, they tend to ignore their symptoms. And so um And then, like I said, detailed history, certain things like malaria and stuff like that can present like a year later. Right. Um, How they got to wherever they went, what their accommodations were, um, and then the geographic areas can give some clues. Whether they went to Africa or Asia, whether they're a rural and urban setting. um, And like I said, food and uh, potential vectors. All right. So. The most common diagnoses where we actually make a diagnosis are malaria, and obviously that's exposure to mosquitoes. Though, you know, being in Florida, that means nothing being exposed to mosquitoes, right? Dengue, same thing, mosquitoes. Mononucleosis syndromes, that can be EBV, CMV, or HIV. Rickettsial infection, particularly with ticks. Respiratory illness, all right, so influenza obviously um, can be anywhere. And the seasonality of influenza is not the same as it is in other localities. It may be different than here. So just because we don't have influenza here or in the Northeast, doesn't mean that you don't have influenza someplace. Right? And fever. And then actually a lot of people, you just have no diagnosis. All right. This is, again, the long list of things. The other thing that you have to worry about is is not only diagnosing the patient but are they at you know bringing in something that makes everyone else including you at risk okay so this is where the travel history is really really important so if you have somebody who could have ebola or mers right hopefully someone in the ed or something noticed and asked but you know we had like i mean you guys are younger than me but You know, there was a guy who had Ebola in a Dallas hospital and um, got sent out and it was not good because it didn't occur to them. Right. Um, And so, uh, you know, so Ebola, all these hemorrhagic fevers, um, you know, influenza, obviously, if it's a really bad one. I mean, regular influenza, not so bad, but mirrors could be bad. Uh, Plague. No. I don't think we've had a case of pneumonic plague, you know, in the U.S., but still, it's extremely infectious and transmissible. Measles is one that we could see, right? You know, um, chickenpox is also very infectious, right? And, um, you know, chickenpox is something that, you know, we're close to the Caribbean. There doesn't have seem to be as lot of endemic chickenpox in the Caribbean um, islands. So people who might be... Um, from the Caribbean might be exposed That they could come in, they could have traveled, all sorts of things like that. And then pulmonary TB as well, right? So think infection prevention too while you're evaluating the patient. Okay, so if appropriate, I think we've all discussed this, malaria, thin and thick smear. Anyone know the difference between a thin and thick smear? I'm told. One tells you if there is malaria, if there are malaria, then the other one sort of gives you a percentage you can sort of quantify it. Yes. all right. So so I mean these are if you're not used to doing these things, it's not so easy. So so basically a thin smear is like for blood smear, right? So so classically you use GIMSA because it's easier to see the parasites, but you know, a regular right stain is is good enough if you know what you're doing. Um, but you know, you know. The attendings in the room are old enough that we looked at peripheral blood smears are, well, excepting um, Dr. Moore and, and Dr. Katzman, but, you know, <laughs> Dr. Montero and, and, and um, Ayler and I. Among the things that we had to do when we were babies like you is we had to go look at the peripheral smear. And if we had a particularly mean resident, they wanted to know whether you looked at it yourself and you actually knew if it had Whatever. Right. You know, and we actually had to do the gram stains ourselves and stuff like that. So most of us like, well, at least I have, since I always work in pretty busy urban places, I personally diagnosed malaria using blood smears that I did myself. But most of you haven't. And you probably can't even get a blood smear at the time around here. OK, so then and then good luck getting a reading from a tech <laughs> in the middle of the night here. You, you might be able to. But other hospitals, you know, it, it's, you know. like an of god all right but but all right so the thick smears are actually pretty hard to read um you know and so it's basically concentrated blood you lyse the red blood cells and then you look for white cells and parasite forms and that's the most sensitive way of looking for parasites okay Uh, the thin smear is just looking for parasites and if you're good at what you're doing you can actually speciate based on on the thin smear all right and that believe it or not you know in this modern era is the gold standard for diagnosis here in the US and in the world okay so this is why it actually becomes relevant now, there's also a rapid diagnostic test for malaria if it's available. Um, they're testing it out here, but we don't have it available. And like all RDTs, it's not as sensitive, right? Um, probably for the thing that's the medical emergency, falciparum, it's sensitive enough, but um, it's not sensitive for all cases of malaria. And then, you know, the usual things CBC, electrolytes, LFTs, including billies, um, blood cultures, UA, stool for O1P, or or these days, you know, molecular test GI panels, um, chest X-ray, HIV, you know, monospite spot, you know, hepatitis, serology, coagulation profiles. But this will all depend on, you know, the travel history and what you've decided is high, high priority in the differential diagnosis, right? So you're not going to necessarily get all of these things, but this is where talking to the patient and, you know, and getting your differential diagnosis of what's possible is really, really important. Okay, so the thing about malaria, and um, you guys are probably aware of this because of both the recent cases and all the publicity, is um, if you travel to an endemic area and have a history of fever, uh, even if the fever is no longer present, you believe the patient and you work up malaria, okay? So malaria fevers tend to be periodic and, no one entirely knows why but people like most fevers that tend to happen in the afternoon but malaria fevers tend if they're periodic they tend to happen at night so they're at two in the morning so if someone comes in say i feel miserable and i've been having fevers and they don't have a fever and it's in the morning or in the afternoon believe them and work up malaria okay the malaria smear because it's periodic And because it correlates to when the parasites lice out of the infected red cell, the malaria smears can be negative if the parasitemia is relatively low. And also, falciparum tends to, the mature forms tend to sequester in um, the the peripheral organs, so you won't see it in the blood, okay? okay? So because of that, if they have a suggestive enough history, you have to work them up and you... Usually need to get more than one smear, all right. If if the index of suspicion is high, the physical exam could be completely normal, or if abnormal, it may be abnormal in a way that's completely nonspecific, all right. They come in with a fe- febrile illness, and you know, um, the incubation period is usually less than a month, usually within a couple of weeks, and prophylaxis doesn't mean malaria is ruled out ruled out, and often. Like, people who live in malaria endemic areas, if they're stationed there, frequently don't take malaria. Often, if once it's like true confessions time, you know, were you given malaria prophylaxis? Did it take it? Most people say yes. But then when you talk to them a little bit later and they're talking about it, they said, well, you know, I might have skipped a few doses. (laughs) So it's not that you don't believe them, right? But that does not at all affect whether you try to um, work them up from malaria. But the problem is if they took prophylaxis, it might be a little bit harder to diagnose because, you know, um, it may take a while to take off. All right. So severe malaria, falciparum malaria, occasionally null's eye malaria, um is a life-threatening medical emergency. Non-specific compress. compressed. Progress really, really quickly. And you can have somebody sort of talking to you and fine. And then literally at death's door in less than 24 hours. Completely normal person too. Okay. And they can lose consciousness. They can have pulmonary edema. They can get acidotic. They can have renal failure. They can have shock. That's usually plasmonium falciparum. And the case that we had, you know, was a young soldier who was in his 20s. And Dr. Gaddafi who took care of him, said she really thought he was going to die. You know. Um, and N. O. L. Z. I, which is a zoonosis and pretty much in Southeast Asia and stuff like that, can also present the same way. So that usually clearly uh, I mean, that's pretty rare here. You, you see more on the West Coast just because, you know, it's in, you know, a, a you know, a constrained geographic area. But obviously we get travelers from all over the place. So it doesn't mean we can't get it. All right, people with Plasmodium vivax, um, in the malaria world, it's it's like people with Falciparum can die. Um, people with vivax feel like they're gonna die. All right, so they feel terrible, right? You know, but the parasitemia tends to be low. They feel god awful, but they actually usually don't die. So this doesn't mean that you shouldn't pick it up and be the good doctor and and but. VIVAX is not that same level of medical emergency as falciparum. All right. So malaria. 40% of the world's population lives in malaria and dynamic areas. Um, and the human malaria's effect, I mean, I don't even know where they get these statistics because, you know, how do you count malaria malaria cases in the middle of the? <laughs> health? Supposedly, it's 250 million people and 600,000 uh, deaths per year. And if you, any of you have been to um, Africa, you know that it's like a little piece of paper done at the county, you know, thing that's transmitted to the National Health Office on yet another piece of paper. So these statistics, you have to take them with a grain of salt, but you can't follow trend lines. Right. So um, and, you know, during the COVID era, we didn't have any malaria because no one was reporting any malaria, but no one believed that. Right. Uh, so. It's associated with huge world poverty, huge economic cost, and the CDC, Tulane, um, you know, College of Public Health, Hopkins College of Public Health were all started for malaria control because we had malaria in the U.S. Okay, um, until the 50s, and officially we were certified as having no malaria in 1970. All right, so obviously, you know what's going on here in Florida, and Sarasota. And with global warming and world travel and Florida being Florida and mosquitoes being everywhere. Okay. If if malaria is can come back and be endemic again, it will happen here, right? Okay. <laughs> all right. So malaria has a long and illustrious history. All right. It's been known for, you know, millennia. Um uh, in Italian, the name came from Mal Aria, so bad air. So people did know somehow it was in the air. Turned out it was in the air because it was mosquitoes, but there have been a lot of Nobel Prizes associated with malaria. All right, Labyrinth discovered the blood stages. Ronald Ross um, proved that mosquitoes transmitted it. The first sort of medication which became quinine was from the tree. Yeah. So one of the big fights was, um, you know, like controlling areas and islands that had these trees, because as part of you know the wars for global domination, countries would literally fight for the islands that had these trees. But because they the, the generals knew that infectious diseases were killing their soldiers, okay, um, all sorts of weird stuff happened. Malaria was actually used to treat syphilis, so you did fever induction. Treated, and then treated the malaria with quinine. And there's another guy who got a Nobel Prize for treating syphilis with malaria. Um, and then obviously, um, Dr. Two devo- discovered artemisinin drugs that, um, from and, and that she won uh, in 2015. So malaria's a big deal. All right, so plasmonia um, is the causative agent of malaria. There's hundreds of named species. Most of them are exquisitely adapted to their hosts, so reptiles, birds, rodents, monkeys, animals, you know, of all sorts, and there's all these different peculiarities about the different species and stuff like that. It's thought that the human malaria's jumped from primates at some point or another. and there are five species falciparum, vivax, malaria, ovalia, and noll's eye. is a zoonosis. So it's primarily one of primates, but because of the close relationship between humans and primates, it's jumped over. Um, so it's primarily a zoonosis, but it's also one that potentially could become more regularly seen in people. Um, The mosquito that transmitted is the female Anopheles mosquito, and we have Anopheles mosquitoes here in Florida. Uh, Its range is fairly short, so only a a mile or two. So this is where you can do localized vector um, control policies to get rid of mosquitoes if you're trying to control malaria. And that's a mainstay of malaria control. All right. So vivax is the malaria species that's been in temperate zones. So that's the, the species that we had here in the U.S. Uh, before we eliminated malaria. Um, and that's what was also in Italy and in Europe. Ociprim is mostly tropics and subtropics. Malaria is same range as Falciprum, but less common. And Eye, like I said, but less common, looks like Plasmodium malaria as far as its morphology but it's way more deadly. And ovale is um, West Africa. And and what's now with better molecular tools, it used to be thought since it, everything was diagnosed by um, um, smears, it was thought that you only usually had one um, infection. But now that we've got better molecular tools and stuff like that, it it's turn, turns out that probably co-infection is more common originally thought. And the, the The significance of that is not really, really clear, but in the old days where we were taught, well, even though you might be susceptible to two kinds of um, infection, you were generally didn't get it, but now with the molecular epidemiology, that seems not to be true. So, and it's unclear whether that's change in factor, change in drugs, change in malaria control, or just that we have better tests. All right, so in endemic areas, Clinical malaria is the disease of the young. Okay, so this is um, from uh, a Nick White paper in the Lancet. So red, the red line. So so um, the population of people is on the y-axis. The x-axis is eight, goes up to 50, and the red line is severe malaria. So those are the deaths, and that's pretty much kids under the age of five, and they die of cerebral malaria and anemia. Um, and then as they grow up, they require partial immunity, okay, so that they can get sick occasionally. Um, but you know in areas that where malaria is endemic, you do a profile of school age children and 30 to 40% will have parasites in the blood, just there. And then they'll get something called partial premonition and premonition. In other words, adults walking around, you just check their blood and they'll have parasites and they seem to be completely fine. Okay. So there is no sterile immunity. All right. And the other thing about Uh, malaria that's significant is that you leave a malaria endemic area, whatever was magic about you being exposed all the time goes away. And so after a year or two, you're vulnerable again. All right. So you lived all your life in some place where they have tons of malaria. You had a few cases when you were a kid. You don't take prophylaxis. You're fine. You grow up, you come here, you go to Europe, you live for a few years, you go back, and you're all of a sudden susceptible, yeah. All right, so so this is what happens to us. So we have about 2,000 cases of malaria a year. Um, in 2018, there were 1,800 reported uh, confirmed malaria, 98% were or, or imported, and one case was transmitted by a BMT. And that was actually one of our cases at Moffitt. So um, it was mostly falciparin and vivex. Most are imported from Africa. Most didn't take prophylaxis. And this is where it's significant. Most were visiting friends and relatives. And the deaths almost always happened because someone didn't think of it or there was a delay in diagnosis or inappropriate treatment. So that case over at Moffitt was because a hematology tech was very on the ball. Notice the malaria on the blood smear, all right? The person who got the BMT did not, had not been in a malaria endemic area. Turned out her sister had been and maybe she sort of got treated, but she never really got treated. And she certainly never thought she had malaria. Right. Um, and a lab tech picked it up, called the very on the ball ID fellow. Right. Um, yeah. Were they your year or they were they were uh, year? OK, so anyhow. So so basically. So Nate goes. You know, and and runs around trying to figure out what to do. tries to get she doesn't look so hot, you know, um, and tries to get artesanate from the CDC. And at the time, um, and and they gave her oral oral meds, and her parasitemia was going down, um, but her she was getting more confused. And he tried to get artesanate from the CDC and their instructions were do not give artesanate. We only have one batch. And we have limited number of vials. So they basically getting artesanate from the CDC was like literally an of god. David Friedman, who's a world famous travel medicine person said if you want it, you just have to lie and say, you know, that, that no, seriously, this is what he used to tell me is just lie and figure out what it takes to tell them and, and and they'll send it to, otherwise they will lie. So so anyhow, so Nate calls me up and said, I hear you're a malaria expert. This doesn't sound right. And I said, no, you're absolutely right. Um, try calling them back and stuff like that. He goes, yes, they're is going, but she's getting more confused. She looks really awful. I'm really worried. <laughs> so I said, all right call around, somebody might still have some IV quinidine and um, give her everything that you can that's oral, you know. find some quinine, you know. find some doxycycline, see if you can get her to take it and call around and see if someone has IV quinidine. And the VA fortunately did have some, so she got some IV quinidine. And then I think a day later, they finally did get artesanate. But literally this was um, Nate and Mindy, who was actually the regular, um, Moffat id fellow going the extra you know 15 miles to make sure that the right thing happened right and and so you know so this is where um that made a difference and and similarly the case that we had was was anna sakura and guy handley coming in to make sure that this kid had malaria unfortunately he died because we didn't have iv artesanate and he it was everywhere but still you know, it was them going and then working hard with Dr. Montero's stewardship team. So we had artesanate. So then when we had the soldier from the Congo that Dr. Kandapi thought was going to die, we at least had IV artesanate. So this is where, you know, you look at all the case reports of people who die in the U.S. It's because someone didn't think about it. And Mindy actually told me of a case that she had. It was the beginning of COVID and some woman had been in Liberia and they were so sure she had COVID that it never dawned on them to figure out whether she had malaria. So she came in and 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 nearly died, went into renal failure and got cerebral malaria because no one checked a malaria smear until she'd been like in like three times. Okay. So this is A, a medical emergency. And if you don't think of it, you won't. And And getting treatment is real pain in the neck. Now, I put this slide in because this is also important since we're in Florida, we do occasionally get episodes of locally acquired mosquito-borne malaria. All right, so this is 57 to 2003 and you can see one or two sporadically, you know, in the US, right? Not very often, usually in California, Texas or Florida. All right? And until this past year, the most recent one was 2003. And the most recent outbreak was actually in Palm Beach. Um, eight cases of Ibex. Most had never traveled to a malaria endemic area. They were confirmed by smear and PCR treated with quinine, doxy, and primaquine. And molecular typing showed that they were all the similar isolate. No mosquitoes were positive. And there was sporadic reports in Florida, Texas, California. And there are anopheles uh, mosquitoes still in the U.S. Every once in a while it has been falciparum because there's no reason why it can't be falciparum, but falciparum isn't as adapted to our climate. So and I mean, honestly, no one knows why, but 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 the locally acquired um, outbreaks have pretty much all been um, um, vivax, though. There have been an occasional one that have been falciparum. And, you know, obviously, if you get enough here, there's no reason why falciparum couldn't adapt to here. But vivax is probably less of a jump for it, given our climate, than it is for um, falciparum. All right. So don't think it can't be falciparum, but in in fact, it, 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 it has pretty much been vivax um, um, most of the times it's happened. All right. So we are famous for all the wrong reasons for malaria here. All right. Um, so the first local case um, happened in so so we have also have travelers plasmodium vivax. So Sarasota uh, uh, Memorial. So the first local transmitted case, which apparently was on a homeless person, uh, was in May 2023. There have been seven cases today. The last one was about two weeks ago. All are PIVAX. So this is the map. That's Sarasota County, that's Manatee. It's Northern Sarasota County, right on the border between Manatee and Sarasota. And what's a little scary is three mosquitoes during their arbovirus surveillance were actually positive. So that's like finding a needle in the haystack. So it's a little worrisome that we found three mosquitoes that were positive. So they've been spraying like crazy in Sarasota County, as you might imagine. Huh? They found seven, there's more than seven. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, 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 no. This is the yeah, point. Uh, <laughs> this is this is the point. You should have found zero. Those mosquitoes should be hard to find and, yeah. and someone found them. Just incidentally, an arbovirus. So this is all the you know the different things that they look for and they scratch the mosquito. I mean, and even if it's scare, you know, I mean it's I mean the chances of that being positive are like pretty low. All right. So anyhow, the Florida DOH people are appropriately concerned and people strain like crazy. Yes? What do they find these mosquitoes so, hey. they just randomly trap them and they test them so so so, so this is why this is why it is incredibly yeah. remarkable and a little scary that they found this right because this is like literally literally trap I mean, I mean, so they have little so, so so literally if i'm looking for you know anything and i just randomly pick people and just do random testing without any idea what's going on. What are the odds of me finding it? Like, it has to be really prevalent for me to find it, right? So anyhow, that's a little scary to me, right? And once again, this is a situation where we had a really, really, really heads up hematology tech at Sarasota Memorial. I don't know why they got the peripheral blood smear because obviously it's not routine here. But anyhow, a really on the ball hematology tech said, you know, all right, Homeless person who comes in with fever. It could be anything, right? And I mean, maybe it's because I think they all had thrombocytopenia. So maybe that's why they 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 were worried about TTP or something else. So maybe that's why they did the peripheral blood sphere. Anyhow, they did the peripheral blood sphere and a uh, very heads up hematology tech said, malaria here and called up the ID doctors and then they changed their protocol so that they actually in service, the RDTs and stuff like that. So Sarasota, Sarasota Memorial actually has the RDT and they changed their protocol so that they can actually diagnose malaria pretty well. And so that they've actually diagnosed, I think of the seven cases they've had like five there. So, um and actually um we're you know in a collaboration with CDC and DOH up at NID RBR malaria group um, is actually trying to see if we can type them to see if they're the same isolate or not. So we don't know, but so, so we have four of the samples that we're trying to type up there. So uh, so we'll have to see if we have any more. I know they've been spraying like really crazy. But this is but this is another thing, right? That that you know, if that that lab tech hadn't been pretty experienced and on the ball, right? Okay, so be be coming to the lab techs too. All right, so plasmodium. All right, so the life cycle is one where the female Anopheles um, mosquito um, injects sporozoids into the blood. Those sporozoids are like homing missiles. You only need like two or three probably to go straight for the liver and set up malaria infection. So they're really efficient at what they do all right and then they bring um grow up thousands of merozoites that invade the red cells all right so this is completely clinically silent but the liver stage is very very important because it's required for transmission and acquisition of malaria it's the site for a lot of the prophylactic treatments for malaria right and um the csp vaccine targets the liver stages okay so So it's very, very important. Clinical malaria is all the repeated red cell stages. Okay, so that's where you get the fevers and the lysing out. And then you get the gametocytes, you know, there's some signaling. And then that's what's picked up by the female mosquito again and and reinitiates the cycle. And every phase of that cycle is essential for transmission of malaria. Okay, So, so that's why spraying for mosquitoes will stop transmission of malaria. And that's why also vaccines and um, drugs targeting the liver stage, if it works, will also tra- stop transition to malaria. Thanks. Are people with like cirrhosis or liver disease or less at risk? Like, is it a worse environment? I don't know. I mean, because, you know, the problem is where malaria is, you know, probably people with cirrhosis and stuff like that do so badly from all the other things that they would get that they like, like it's, it's, it's sort of would be hard to know. I mean, like where there's a lot of malaria, I think it's sort of hard to live a long time with cirrhosis, right? Because it's like in the middle of Africa. Right. So I don't know. And then, you know, doing a cohort study, how would you know? Right. So, so I think it would be hard. Oh, I don't know. Okay. All right, so that's a female Anopheles mosquito, that's sporozoites. Um, And and like I said, those are homing missiles that like have an incredible, they're very efficient, right? They have to go into the skin, make it out of the skin, into your blood system and make it to the liver. And they're very good at doing what they do, right? And then they um, have a replication phase in the liver. Um, And, you know, one or two can make thousands, right? And this is completely clinical silent. There's no way you would know if this had happened to you. All right. So two of the species, vivax and O'Valley, are special in that they have some sort of mechanism that no one understands where some of the parasites go on and make merozoites that infect the blood. And some of them just go to sleep. So hypnozoite, hypno means sleeping. And there's some of them that just sort of sit there sleeping for unclear reasons. And what's actually sort of interesting about it is um, how frequently what they wake up seems to correlate with, you know, how possible it is to transmit and seasonal, like when mosquitoes are around. So they... um, so, the relapse rate in tropical areas where there's mosquitoes around all the time seems to be higher than in temperate areas where there's more seasonality with mosquitoes and things like that, which is very strange and very interesting. But, all right. So, if you're talking about the erythrocytic schizogeny, in other words, the replication in the red cells, eye, um, and this is why eye is so dangerous, is it can go through the whole cycle in 24 hours. So we can go from some to a lot really quickly. Falciparum, ovale, um, vivax, it's a 48-hour cycle, 72 hours for malaria. You know, this is also something that, who knows, it could be on the boards. Is this functionally important? Probably not. But, um, but um, and, and classically, though this also is not incredibly helpful, um, you know, you have periodic fevers, right? So classically you have fevers every two days with Vivax and ovally and falciparum. Is that really, really helpful for making a diagnosis? Not really, but this could be on the words, right? For falciparum, really, if there's a periodic fever, you know, they they tend to have it at night, but they frequently just have fevers, you know, in, in less synchronous pattern, okay? Um, and that probably is because they can infect any red cell, So there, there are some on today's cycle and some on, you know, yesterday's cycle. And 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 that's the story. OK, but there are differences in the fever curves. And this is sort of one of the classic, you know, old time parasitology, you know, things that people, very smart clinicians noticed a long time ago. So do the fevers correlate with like when they're yes. So that's why the fevers tend to be at night for reasons that are, I don't understand why malaria parasites know it's nighttime, but they know. And even the lab, they know. Like, I used to work on malaria a long time, and I tried to get them to lice out during the day. And after, like, literally six months of trying to get them to be obedient, I realized it was easier for me to drive into the lab at midnight because because they just lice out at night. I don't know why. But they but so, so there is something about something or other that they're programmed to lice out at night. Now, it makes sense, you know, thinking biologically, right, you know, in that lysing out in the evening and things like that. You know, that's when people are lying down. That's why, you know, when mosquitoes might be around and stuff like that. Um, but why? Well, completely beyond me, but but they definitely tend to lice at night. And those fevers tend to be all that toxic stuff sort of, you know, basically all these red cells explode release all this stuff that makes your immune system very angry. And that's why you get the fever. So so, so this is why, you know, getting those blood smears in the middle of the night are frequently the highest yield if the parasitemia is low. I mean, with the falciparum, you usually, you know, you can see low levels because it's not as synchronous and things like that. But that's why you can have the right history, but you might not pick it up. Okay, so diagnosis, right? Think of the diagnosis because it's not so easy to make the diagnosis, all right? Uh, so this is a picture of the thick smear and the thin smear. The thick smear um, is the one that you, you know, do a drop of blood, let the red cells lice, then you stain it. And honestly, I, you know, I can't really read a thick smear. I would whole a bunch of them, and I, I would never say that I could actually, you know, thin smears. Um, you know, are import for morphology and also quantitating the parasitemia. Um, now we treat everybody the same way. But in the old days, you know, where, you know, quinine was hard to find, but there was still chloroquine sensitivity and stuff like that. And there was patchy drug resistance. You know, what we were told, and this is also easier to just go sick the medical student to go do the blood smear themselves, um, you know, seriously you know this is this is you know like when you were a med student in medic go oh, go do a blood smear on that patient and you know blah 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 and to, and then bring it to me and we'll go look at it uh, but in any case what the recommendation was i don't think we can do it this age is literally to get blood smears every eight hours for two to three days to see number one if they're getting better right and if they don't get better you worry that they have resistant organisms or something bad is happening, right? And so that's still the recommendation that you get serial blood smears. But given the fact that you frequently can't get them and get them red, it's a little bit less useful. Yes. they thick and, and they're just visually how they look, or is there some other? No, no. It, it literally is like a blood smear is is, is the the thin, the thin is 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 exactly like a peripheral blood smear. So so you you take a little drop and then you slide it across and you make it like a feathered, thin suspension. I mean, you've probably looked at blood smears at, at some point. And a thick smear is literally you put a drop on there, let it dry, then you like, you know, pop all the red cells, you know, let them all pop, wash it all away, and then stain with, usually it's Giemsa, uh, which will stain the white cells and the parasites. And then you normalize the parasite count to the number of white cells, and that gives you a rough sense of how many parasites there are. So then, then if you have low levels of parasitemia, you can sort of normalize and have some idea of how many parasites there are. Like the lab techs here, if you ask them to prepare like a thick smear, it's middle of the night. I mean, I could look at a thin smear in the lab and right. maybe know what I'm right. looking at, but how? Who would we get to like help us? With that? Honestly. Honestly, listen, if you're thinking about medical emergency, right, if the parasitemia is so low that you can't see it on a thin smear if you know what you're doing, probably it's not the medical emergency, right? You know, it's only if the parasitemia is high and they have falciparum that you should be freaking out, right? The thick smear is for medical thoroughness and making sure you're treating somebody. But if you don't see it on a peripheral smear, but by definition, if you know what you're doing, right, they don't have a very high parasitemia, Right. So 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 yes, you should to be thorough, you should get the thick smear, blah, 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 blah. But you know, you know, especially if you're just trying to figure out how whether we have any coartem or what we're gonna do, and everyone's having a nervous breakdown because they have no idea what to do about malaria, this should not be our priority, right? It's getting the diagnosis, figuring out whether the is getting, you know calming that are so everybody gets the patient treated appropriately but if in the thin smear you can't see it and and, and there are people who know what they're doing and looking for parasites and you can't find it by definition right there, there can't be that many parasites even if you have the right diagnosis right so not to worry let the lab deal with thick smear and stuff like that right so um Sorry, I probably already said this, but is it better to get a smear when they're fevering? Yes. That's the best time? Yes. Okay. So if that for some reason occurred like during the day? Yeah. But 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 the, so this is why, though, you know, this is, this is one of the problems with modern medicine and stuff like that is like, you know, we used to be extremely low tech. So you could like, and since, you know, I'm in the era where if you wanted a lab done, went and grow it yourself because it was like hopeless to get the blood draw team or somebody to do it, right? So you literally you you like he was on the sign out seat, you know, said somebody to go check the malaria smear at two in the morning, right? Um and then obviously if someone spiked in the middle of the night, you got called right. Um so then you could go, you know, get it done. So getting a Q eight or Q twelve blood smear actually was more feasible than it is now, you know. Um and then, you know, in the old days you know, you could go down to the, lab. you know, most places had a little lab in the ER or something like that. So you could do basic staining. Or if you had a big lab like that, you could go, like you knew that you could be nice to the heme techs in the middle of the night and they would stick it in their thing and stain it for you. And then you'd come back like an hour later and you'd go look at it. So, all right. So now we're talking about other ways of diagnosing malaria. So so you can do immunologic detection of plasmon and falciparum antigens, HRP2, and that's the the rapid diagnostic test that's done um, um, in, um, you know, in Africa. So it's a single test. You can have immunologic detection of another sort of pan-malaria antigen, aldolase, or LDH um you can do fluorescence fine process so this is fluorescence of um you know of plasma of course you know i mean we're not gonna be able to get that i mean that's cool and then state labs for confirmation and things like that they confirm by pcr or dna probes. but that's also something that you're going to get in a specialty lab all right so realistically speaking we're going to have rdts here um and we're going to have peripheral blood smears here is it way over Oh. Oh, all right. Well, like, let's all right. So, so this is what uh, RDT looks like, right? This looks like the COVID test. It's it, the principle is the same, right? Um, and, uh, um, and 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 it, it's exactly the same, right? And so, like all RDTs, it's easy to use, but it's not as sensitive. Okay. Um, and then so I'm just going to show you pictures with Alciprim. All right. So these are the stages of falciparum. Right there, that's a thick smear. I mean, can you, I mean, like, that's impossible to figure out what all of that is unless you're used to, right, in the in the corner. The gametocytes, classically those banana-shaped gametocytes. So that's also something that could be on the board. So I'll show you a blood smear and say, what does this person have? If you see the banana shape, that's falciparum, right? Prophezos and schizonts, person is really sick if you see that in the blood. So you will not see that. If you do, worry, because that's really bad. Uh, but you will see those ring forms. Vivax. Um Vivax is easier to pick up. Lower parasitemia, but you know, you'll see the Schuffner stocks. The red cells will look, you know, obviously like weird and abnormal, right? Like you no, know, like this, like, like you will know that doesn't look right, right? <laughs> so you just have to find it. No, I'm serious. I'm serious, right? This is pattern recognition. Like, you know, you, it doesn't take a lot of genius to figure out that, that there's something wrong with that red cell, right? Malaria, similar type thing, right? And, and the problem is malaria and Null's eye look almost identical. It's just that the clinical course is different. And ovale also, right? The, 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 the red cells look really weird, right? And the red cells look oval, right? So if you find something like that, then it's not hard to figure. It doesn't really matter what species it is. You know that that's, that's not normal, right? But obviously, you know, the experts can tell, but if there's clinical overlap, you know, that's null's eye, falciparum, and malaria. Even if you're an expert, it would be hard to tell the difference between those, right? Um, so that's why, even, you know, um, so so it's you make the diagnosis and then you deal try to decide if it's a medical emergency. Basically, it correlates with what the parasite burden is, falciparum is the worst eye actually also can be really, really bad. Malaria, a VIVAX can be enough that it makes you feel really, really bad. But because VIVAX and ovali are in reticulocytes, right, like you never have more than one or 2% reticulocytes, even if your bone marrow is completely going crazy, right? So there's a limit to how, how much of a parasitemia you can have because it can't go into more mature red cells, whereas falciparum can go into more mature red cells. Right, so that's why the parasitemia can be very high. And another piece of medical trivia that may be on the boards is, is malaria goes into old cells. What is it with malaria in the, um, the kidneys? You said down there it's a complications renal. You know, I'm not sure why people get it, but associated with falciparum malaria, um, people do they get blackwater fever? That's from quinine. We don't give quinine, but they 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 get renal failure. I mean, they basically get multi adults get multi-system failure and they get renal failure and uh why they get it i'm not really sure i don't think people know you know they they basically get clinical shock yeah atn probably yeah it's probably atn but the exact mechanism you know it's it's you know we don't have so much here um it tends to be, this whole multi-system failure tends to be adults rather than kids. So in endemic areas where you can study a lot of malaria, you actually don't see adults that get that sick because they're all immune, right? So so the exactness is probably ATN, but I'm not really sure. But, you know, obviously they come in with like bad shock and then, um, you know, and then uncomplicated malaria, it's completely non-specific. The one thing that you see that's a little weird that might tip you off, and that's probably why these people in Sarasota got their peripheral blood smear, is you do get thrombocytopenia with both 5X, pretty much all malarious, right? So that might prompt somebody to go look at a peripheral blood smear. And if it gets worse, then you might see anemia. But anemia, you tend, it probably would not, unless they're really, really sick, it probably would not be so bad that that would trigger a... You know, like let's find out what's going on. Search. So severe malaria, um, multi organ failure, and that's mostly adults. Kids die of cerebral malaria and anemia, but you can die of air. Yes. And lab criteria for severe malaria, even if the patient doesn't look bad, is if they got a hematocrit less than 20, glucose less than 40, parasitemia greater than 5%, lactic acidosis. So, I mean, this is like. Obviously, they got labs that look terrible. <laughs> I mean, this is not a subtle thing, right? <laughs> um, um, but hopefully you've made the diagnosis before that. I mean, pretty much here in the U.S., if someone has falciparum malaria, you admit them and you observe them and treat them. A lot of places you don't do that, but here, that's what we would do, right? And that's been true since I was a medical student, right? Um that's a falciparum treatment, resistance common, pretty much everyone would treat it with an ACT. Um, some places, depending on where they come from, you can still treat with chloroquine, but I don't think anyone would do that these days. Um, and if you severe, you would treat with IV artesanate. Um, you can treat with autoboclon, quinine. Um, in theory, you can treat with chloroquine, but I don't think anyone would do that in this day and age. VIVAX. According to the WHO guidelines, they don't really care what kind of malaria is treated with an ACT. Of course, the U.S. CDC can't agree with that. And so ACT is not uh, uh, approved by the FDA for treatment of VIVAX. So if you look at the CDC recommendations, ACT is not on them for VIVAX, but it does work. So ACT, except for the areas where you've got artemisinin resistance in Southeast Asia, works for any kind of malaria at as as of this writing, but but if you look at the CDC guidelines, you will be confused, like, how come that's not there? It's because of regulatory things rather than efficacy. And then you do need to treat for the liver stages if you have documented VIVAX. If you're in doubt at all, the person looks terrible, you're not sure, treat like or falciparum. And you do need to get a G6PD to clear the liver stages and preferably quantitative, because if you're a little bit G6PD deficient, you can give sort of a lower dose of primaquin safely. If they're really deficient, then then you can't give it. And so you actually need a quantitative G 6 pd which I don't even know. I think it's a send out test here. Yeah, it's a send out because it's can't get back. That's just yeah. So so this is this is another logistical problem. That we have to deal with all right so the take home message and i'm sorry i went over time um so malaria looks like a lot of other things so the most important thing is for someone to think about it history is key but obviously here we are in florida and in sarasota more than half of the people according i mean they haven't released all of this but like i said because we've been our lab Is very connected with the people in Sarasota, and we've been in discussions. More than half the people who got it in Sarasota are actually housing-challenged, so um, and they are sort of localized in the same geographic area. Um, So, again, a case of heads-up lab people, smart ID people who knew what to do made a difference in these kinds of cases.